a Highline podcast. This is Ravel, a roundtable show about the complexity of faith in the age of information. My name's Josh. I'm Stephen. And I'm Emily. We each grew up in different parts of American Christianity, and we still keep thinking about how to take it seriously, even as we leave some beliefs behind. We think theology should be an exploratory dialogue, so our hope is that this podcast will encourage growth, both for individuals and communities. We don't have all the answers, but we're here to sort out as much as we can over a drink or two. Join us as we ravel out our faith in a complex world, pulling on one thread at a time, seeking meaning at the end of it all. Thanks for listening. Hey, welcome, friends. Josh and Emily, how are you? Quite well. Thank you very much, Stephen. Mm. I am peachy. Quite. Thank you. Feeling peachy, she says. Indeed. What? Indubitably. I must ask, are you drinking? I've prepared myself a mocktail because I know we have several listeners who are of the sober variety. So I have a <laughs> lemon blueberry sparkling water with fresh bloobs and also some <laughs> what? No, you rhubarb can't say. champagne jam. And I put a couple of sprigs of basil in there as well. And uh, let me tell you what, it is a summery little drink. It's a good old chap. You- and if this is your first time tuning in, we are not Nomad the Podcast. We are not, we are not British. Josh is committing to this voice for the whole episode. Yeah. You I cannot sustain that. I'm you, so sorry. You can't say the word bloobs trying to sound fancy. No, that really gave me away, didn't it? <laughs> That was very good. Emily. It's really tasty. I've never tried basil in there, but it does taste very fresh. Well done. I love it. Uh, I'm em- just trying not to pee my pants right now. Um- so sorry. Okay, well, e- while Emily composes herself, I am drinking the king of Montana beers. This, Montucket. of course, is the Mountain Man Scotch Ale from Jeremiah Johnson. Oh. You know yeah, what it is? Better. It's it's kind of like this overcast, rainy afternoon here in Billings at the time of recording. And I feel a connection to the UK when I drink this beer, especially on days like this, because I'm just imagining like because of the word Scotch. I'm well, I'm just imagining like the rain-soaked <laughs> hills of Scotland mm. right now, mm-hmm. and I'm feeling very connected to it. You know, I've never been there. I will be going in the next few years, but I don't know. This is enough of a connection to, for me right now. Is the Scotch? I love it. The Scotch Ale. It's delightful. It's the absolute perfect beer for right now. Emily, beverage in hand? Beverage in hand, yes. Um, I'm drinking, I don't know where it's from, um, but it's this very delightfully tart cherry cider. Mm. Beautiful. It's wonderful. Lovely. I'm into it. All right, friends. Let's do it. Let's get into it, shall we? This, I'm breaking the form for Ravel. Oh, in what feels like the first time. And it's like, what, like episode 93 or something like that. It's crazy. Oh, my. Speaking of which, we're creeping up on episode 100. I feel like we should do something special, but I don't know what we're going to do yet. (gasps) Let's keep thinking about that. But while we're still thinking about that, you should absolutely go leave us a review really quick wherever you listen. It means a lot. We're trying to bump up our reviews to celebrate episode 100. So, yes, please do that if you haven't already. Well done. Well done. And if you have. Thank you very much. Also, while we're at it, I guess I missed the announcement that uh, we are still doing our book giveaway from our interview with Stacey Frenis and her book, Love Makes Room. 
So if you want to hop on Instagram or Twitter, Josh is running that thing like a champ as the, our social media manager. We have a book to give away. It's a great book. And if you haven't listened to that interview, make sure you go listen to it. But in other news, I just got to spend another two hours with one of my favorite people on the internet um, over at Trans Regret Snoopy Presents the Bible. I got to record another episode of that podcast with Ariel. And I'm feeling very inspired to do a little bit of a Bible study with you all today, or at least use Bible to kick us off. Um, because her format what? is like when, when you're a guest on her show, you have like weeks to read what you're going to study and prepare and bring notes. So my first episode over there was on Romans 5, 12 through 21, and that's on the Patreon feed for both TRS and Ravel. And then... Coming soon, I don't know when it's going to drop, but I just recorded a, a brand new episode with her on Ephesians 1, which is a very fun chapter of scripture, it turns out. But I'm just feeling inspired to read some Bible together today and uh, see where it leads us. So, yeah, highly unusual. This is, uh, this is definitely a first on the show. Like, if this is someone's first time tuning in, um, we sometimes go full episodes without mentioning the Bible. And now we're reading At all? It. Yeah, we're doing readings. <laughs> and every now and again, we like throw in a, oh yeah, it says this somewhere. And very rarely do we like throw in a, a like a fully formal reference. So this is like, yeah, this is fun. This is next level. Also, I will say, I think it for me, it's probably been three-ish years since I've participated in a like, <laughs> in a formal Bible study. Well, so, Oh, I thought you were going to say it's been like three years since you opened your Bible. <laughs> I open it to argue all the time. Well done. <laughs> well, Josh, I hope you don't feel like I'm forcing this on you, but I thought this would be a fun experiment. Oh, no, no, not at all. No, I was just like, I was just throwing that out there. Absolutely. So, Josh, I've asked you to turn to Luke 10, verse 25 through 29. And Emily, I have you reading Matthew 5, verses 43 through 48. So, Josh, may we start with you, my friend? Would you let us know what translation you're using as well? Oh, I love that question. Thank you so much, Stephen. Uh, I am using the New English translation, which includes over 30,000 of translators' footnotes every time they chose one word over another. Sometimes it also includes like some context around like what that word was associated with or like where else in the Bible it's used. But more often than not, it's like a quick clarification kind of thing. But there's some really interesting notes in there, and it's free on the Bible app. So shout out. Shout out, indeed. Luke 10, 25 through 29. <clears throat> now, an expert in religious law stood up to test Jesus, saying, Teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? So he said to him, What is written in the law? How do you understand it? The expert answered, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength and with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. But the expert, wanting to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Great reading. Emily, <laughs> now we're going to move yeah. on. I'm combining these two stories. I'm combining these passages. So we're going to go straight to Emily. Emily, if you would read your passage and let us know what translation you are using. Yes, so I am reading Matthew chapter 5, verses 43 to 48, which concludes um, that chapter. 
and I am using the NRSV from the New Oxford Annotated Bible with Apocrypha. So mine is actually a Bible that was required in seminary. It is very um, intellectually based, but very, very easy to read. Wonderful, wonderful footnotes, wonderful, concise notes on each author of the chapter and theological insight and geography and things like that. Um, So mine also has the headings that are pertinent to each section. And my heading for my section is love your enemies. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be children of your father in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the righteous and on the unrighteous. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers and sisters, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Beautiful. Wonderful. And the way I marry these two is I, what I want to meditate on on this episode is us potentially wanting to justify ourselves. How do we think Jesus would respond to us asking the question, ah, but who is my enemy? Oh, that's a good question. I like that. I've been thinking about these passages a lot. A few things stick out to me in both, and maybe we'll get there. But I really think this idea of, in Matthew, you saying like, yes, love your neighbor. and hate your enemy. But now Jesus is saying, actually, why don't we flip that even? Um, So I would argue that uh, my passage in Luke, actually, before I get into my thought, Emily, I'm curious in your Bible, what precedes and what follows your passage. So for mine, uh, what immediately precedes this is Jesus is talking to the, the 72 that get sent out. And there's like a couple woes and there's there's like some general like blessing kind of things like blessed are those who have eyes to see blah, blah, blah. Um, but he's like talking to disciples. And then what mm-hmm. immediately comes after, like my, my chunk came under the section that is titled the parable of the good Samaritan, which pretty much everybody's familiar with surprisingly not in VeggieTales though. Um, but <laughs> so mine is like the preamble for the good Samaritan parable. And then after that is a story about Jesus and Martha. So I'm, I'm kind of curious like where your passage ah. is couched. Yes. So before before my section, it's concerning retaliation. So it's an eye for an eye or tooth for a tooth. Um, you know, do not resist the evildoer. And then following that, we go into uh, Matthew six, and that actually starts with concerning almsgiving and then prayer and basically like the behavior and the the acts in which we are called to live by. That's interesting. Yeah. Emily has the heavy lifting of like, this is the sermon on the Mount, right? Mm. Like Mm -hmm. firmly in the middle. And it's like couched in like moral duty discourse. Yeah. Kind of. Right. Yeah. Right. That's interesting. Yeah. So Stephen, I think I would argue that Jesus is not saying hate your enemy in this passage. Right. But the verse that he's quoting in Leviticus is saying that um, it, in Matthew five, when he says, you have heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. That's an old Testament passage. He's referring to saying, this is part of the law that you have. 
but I'm changing it. And now we should love our enemies too. Wait, are they both quoting the same passage in Leviticus? Mine's quoting Leviticus 19.18. Um, yeah, that's what my footnote says as well. For the Matthew one? Yeah. Oh, interesting. I did not know that. It also is from Deuteronomy 23.6 and um, Psalm 41.10. Oh, oh, great. Yes. Well, w- one thing I think is interesting about this passage is that it's not Jesus. It, this is not the place that Jesus is saying that this is where the law is summed up. Yeah. The expert says those things and Jesus says, you're right. So like he, like it's not, the, the expert is not guilty of like taking this quote out of context or something. Like he understands love your neighbor. Mm-hmm. That's the focal point. Yeah. And what I think is interesting about this coming right before the Good Samaritan passage where like the expert is like kind of trying to like, you know, like be sly and be like, well, who's my neighbor? And Jesus tells a story about like, cause what he's, I have a footnote that says he's implying that like, it should only be the righteous, like mm. according to what he's quoting, right? Yeah, right. And then Jesus tells a story about mm. someone that he would have seen as his enemy, and he tells a story about him being righteous. So in some ways, Jesus is not disagreeing with him, mm-hmm. but but he also kind of is. <laughs> like, like he is like proposing a story of someone that that man would have not seen as neighbor and like showing, showing it to him in a way that like he can't argue with. Yeah. Uh, and potentially yeah. telling a story of, a person who may have even represented a literal enemy to this expert of the law, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that's curious. But then I, I love this idea of, of using these passages together because I think it's a pretty big temptation for us to intentionally leave the dev- definition of my enemy vague. Because if it's vague... I can give platitudes to the idea of, yes, I'm a Christian. I love my enemies. But if all of a sudden my enemy, in me saying my enemy, that represents the literal church down the street that has caused me pain, that gets a lot harder for me because I'm like, I'm not, Mm. I don't want to do that though. Right. Like it, Mm. loving your enemy is easy when the concept of enemy is vague or if it's a large representation of like, I feel like this passage was appropriately and rightly used by Christians post 9-11 to say, even if they are our enemies, we ought to find ways to love our Muslim brothers and sisters and siblings. And, and that represents a very large people group. But again, I think the concept of like, if we're able to define our enemy down to like a person in my city with an address who like goes to the grocery store and has their own problems, that gets more scary, I think. Mm-hmm. Oof. So I just kind of want to sit with that this episode and just like interrogate who is our enemy and, and whether that is like specific examples. I don't want to name drop, of course, but I feel like if we can identify who our enemy is in the same way that Jesus cleverly identifies to this man who our neighbor is, um, I think that has some transformative power, at least for me. I'm, I'm kind of hoping to just come away from this episode feeling inspired to love people that I am currently angry at, if I'm being honest. I think one thing that's interesting about the Good Samaritan story is uh, not only does Jesus show, like the, the story, if, if, the, if all Jesus wanted to highlight was someone that you see as an enemy can become a neighbor, he would have just told the story about a Samaritan helping someone on the road. Mm-hmm. But the story also involves other actors that that law expert would have fundamentally seen as a part of religious community and leadership yeah and 
Jesus tells the story in a way that makes them an enemy. And I think that's kind of fascinating. Like, I think Jesus is humbly suggesting that not only can people that you think have it right be an enemy to someone, but you yourself can become an enemy to someone else. Like, just when you think that you're being a neighbor. Ooh. Emily, you've you've been kind of quiet. What are you thinking about right now? You know, I I feel like this is a topic that can be in a really weird paradoxical way the easiest thing to preach about and also the hardest. Oh. Because it's the very thing that time and time again comes up when something bad happens. You know, so for example, yeah. we've had how many mass shootings in our country? I mean, just in our in this year alone, we've had 23 school shootings. And that's just as of right now, like mm-hmm. when this is being aired. Uh, and so, so often people, you know, come into my office when I have office hours or they set an appointment with me and they they really struggle when they hear the message to love your enemy and to love your neighbor. And they say, well, what if my enemy or my neighbor shoots a kid or, you know, robs a bank or, you know, how am I supposed to love Hitler and examples like that, you know? And it's yeah, to the point where like, I almost get numb because I've preached on it so much already. And I know I'm going to preach on it again Mm. that for me, one of the insights that I have personally gained, and I think hopefully those that have done the class with me that I did at my church, we talked about the history of Methodism and um, the recent split that happened with the Methodist church and the idea of being inclusive and affirming and reconciling um, in regards to LGBTQ individuals. One of the things that we talked about was using scripture to actually be foundational in church ministry. And so looking at social principles and laying down what we believe and what we don't believe and being upfront with that, one of the things that I kind of stressed was if you're going to say you love your neighbor and you love your enemies, you need to be comfortable with grappling with the idea that they can be one in the same. And I think people were kind of like (gasps) taken back by that. But it's easy for us to want to just separate the two neighbor, enemy, enemy, neighbor. But there could be that reality where they could be the very same thing. Yeah, that's huge. You know, a neighbor, a neighbor could become an enemy and an enemy can become a neighbor. And (laughs) like they're not exclusive. I think it's very easy to compartmentalize Love your enemy, love your neighbor. Very simple. But what happens when those two realities blend? That's where we struggle because we are not comfortable with the idea of things changing. And so when we are faced with this call to love our enemy or love our neighbor and we see that it's someone who inflicted harm and maybe it was someone who truly like lived in your neighborhood or whatever the case may be, you know, like a great example, Stephen, do you remember a... Yeah. From our school. I do. Great example, right? Kid that went to school with Stephen and I. Horrible atrocity where he had murdered a woman. And we know this kid. Like, I knew him from football. I actually was his manager. And 
you wrestle with the idea of like, how am I called to love someone who caused so much harm? But like, in a way, they're my neighbor. <laughs> yeah. It is possible for those two realities, neighbor and enemy, to blend into one. I think that's a really good example of how uncomfortable it gets when your enemy becomes specific. Right? Like it's mm-hmm. it's easy to be mad at like homicide rates in Chicago, just as a statistic, right? Like this should not be happening. Mm-hmm. But when you know someone who commits that violence or who was a victim of that violence, or even just like a victim once removed, right? A family member now grieving the loss of someone that was taken from them in a horrible way. Mm-hmm. And you know the perpetrator, right? Like your enemy now has a name. And again, like a face, mm-hmm. it, there's, there's like an element of Sonder of like, these are people who I would presume pay taxes. They have a favorite fast food restaurant when they're not feeling like they want to cook at home. Like all these things about like, to normalize someone else or all these things to humanize someone else. It's really scary to do with the enemy, but I feel like what Jesus is really doing in Matthew five is saying, so he has this to say in Luke in Josh's passage where it's like to love your neighbor is to love everyone around you because anyone really is your neighbor. If you have the vantage point to transcend and include everyone into that neighborhood, Right. Which I think is like a definition of the kingdom of heaven is like understanding that everyone is neighbor. But Jesus doesn't even allow us the out here in Matthew to say, sure, my neighbors are the ones that I like. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Right. Or the people I get along with or share the same theological beliefs with or vote the same way is a big one. Right. Like, like he very much, he straight up calls out, like, sure, it's easy to love the people who love you back. (laughs) But like, Including these people do it all the time. Yeah, yeah. Right. Don't all the pagans do that. Don't like the worst of the cheaters do that. They like the people that they like and that like them back. But to include enemy is like, is really the final, I was going to say nail in the coffin. That feels too on the nose. It's like, it really is a way of Jesus driving home the fact that love through Christ is in the most radical way intended to be given to every thing, every person. Mm -hmm. Hmm. One thing I think is interesting about the Good Samaritan story as well is that there's not much engagement with the robbers in the story who are like the very clear enemies in the story. Like they're very clearly the villains. Yeah, right. And I think if the point of the story was love your enemies, it would have been focused on the robbers. And not that it's like not saying something about loving people who are like perceived enemies, but I think that the story of the Good Samaritan is much more victim focused. Not not that that's like a bad thing or anything, but Jesus is like, in my view, he's playing right into the expert's hands by showing him a story of someone that that expert probably would have villainized. And this person is not only not the villain of the story, but is the hero of the story. And helps the victim of someone who the religious establishment looked past. Right. And I think that the enemy conversation is interesting, but I also don't think that this passage right here is like explicitly talking about loving your enemies. But I do think it's an interesting pairing because Jesus does clearly talk about that 
other places, like very explicitly, and especially like in the Father, forgive them for they don't know what they do. Like they were killing Jesus. Yeah. And he was right. like, God, forgive them, please. Like they don't know what they're doing. Asking for it. Yeah. That's why I pair them is because I think the the story of the Good Samaritan does a great job of convincing us that we ought to consider every person a neighbor, even the ones that we want to ostracize or that our in-group has ostracized and labeled out-group. But I think I, I feel like this enemy's passage in Matthew that I gave Emily was to was to say, yes, and, you know, it's even bigger than mm-hmm. the imagination we have in Luke 10 for it. Especially like thinking about the Good Samaritan story, like actually being over in re- Israel and walking some of those roads, like yeah. hillsides and roads. They are not wide. <laughs> like. They are very narrow. And, you know, I think about what great lengths it would take for someone to go around someone who's been hurt and injured and robbed and is lying, you know, naked and beaten on the road. Like some of those places being narrow, like I would imagine, like I could just see that was in that hillside right there where it's extremely narrow. That meant that those other people who ignored the injured man probably had to step over him and so in that case like i almost see those who ignored the man they saw the man as an enemy and i know like you know the religious figure that that walked away he couldn't touch him because he had to stay clean because he's going to do a ceremony like well like i get that but in the sense of like those who ignored the injured man is almost treating the injured man like an enemy like everyone becomes a neighbor and an enemy in that story. It's not just like one person. Mm. I think it just shows the complexity of the idea of neighbor and enemy. <laughs> like it's not clear cut and dry. Like the robbers, oh, they are the definite enemy. But also those who ignored, like to the eyes of the man who's injured, he probably hates them and would see them as enemies. Like mm. I think it can be very dynamic. I think it can be very fluid and interchange how we see people. It's not always this just clear-cut answer. Here's a question. Is our failure to act neighborly, does that make us an enemy in that moment? I really like the way you talked about that, Emily, of the, the, the Levite who steps over him to remain clean because he has a ceremony to perform and he has, he, right, he has a job to do. And he has that justification in his mind. His unwillingness to act made him, in your framing, which I like, an enemy to the person in need of help. Mm -hmm. Is it as simple as saying that is true whenever we fail to act neighborly as well? Like we are setting ourselves up as an enemy to someone who needs our help and we see them very clearly needing help and yet we don't offer it. Because I think Jesus would, Jesus does make an argument elsewhere in the Gospels that, right, to like, to not, is it Jesus or Paul? I'm just thinking of the passage where it's like, you are an enemy of God if you don't follow God or something like that. You know what I mean? You know what I'm talking about? I think I, yeah, I think I know what you're talking about. I thought you were going to quote the passage of, uh, do not withhold good when it is within your power to act. Which I think is oh, yeah. Proverbs. I think that's Proverbs. We just want to say how honored we are that you listen to Ravel. 
Seriously, there's a lot of great shows out there, and we're grateful to be in your feed. Thank you for helping us on our journey to normalize people asking questions about theology. If you want to support what we're doing, the best way to help is to tell a friend about us. We want to be a resource for people on their faith journeys, whether they're deconstructing, reconstructing, switching churches, deconverting, and everything in between. And if you're able, you can support us for as little as $3 a month on our Patreon. Supporting us helps us cover fees, software, equipment, future ideas, and more. For all of you church finance skeptics out there like me, don't worry, we're keeping an open book for transparency. For our supporters, we've built an online space where we can be together. We know it can be difficult to ask questions about our faith, so we want to make that more accessible, comfortable, and normal. We're using an app called Discord, where you'll get private access. You already know us, and we'd love to get to know you. Thank you to everyone who's already supporting, and thank you to Louis Zong for the use of our theme music, In Full Color. Ravel is a founding podcast of the Highline Media Network. And here's a word from one of our sister shows, The Whiskey Bench. If you are willing to give an inch on someone that you don't like and use that as a justification to use force against them or to exclude them in some way or anything like that, you are leaning into these authoritarian ways of of viewing the world. And so the only way to combat that is to truly love your enemy. Because if you're willing to use force against your enemy, you better be careful because you're going to become the enemy at some point and force will be used against you. Oh, Oh gosh, this coffee is gross. I'm tired of this coffee. I need to try something new. Please help me out here. Do any of you have any suggestions? Emily, you've come to the right place. Uh, Steven and I are the resident coffee snobs of the podcast, and we are here to help you. Oh, bless. We are here to save the day with the Highline Blend roasted by the Montana local international award-winning roaster, Revel Coffee. When you order a bag from our Highline merch store, you can directly support the show you love with every bag you buy. Oh, I need to give that a try. So if you want to try new coffee with me, go ahead and order directly from our shop. That's highline.network forward slash shop. I don't know if I've ever thought about this before, but like I'm thinking of in the story, I'm thinking of the victim of the man on the side of the road and how like how this would have been perceived from his perspective, which I think Jesus is like offering as a perspective in the story like the man clearly has a clear enemy and then people who he thought were neighbors become enemies Mm. and then this man who he also would have thought of as an enemy that he's probably afraid of he's like probably afraid of like something worse happening to him again yeah and then this is the man who helps him and i think that that i think that cognitive dissonance is really interesting like it's unclear if jesus is implying that this expert in the law is anyone in the story but Mm. I mean, like the obvious parallel is that he's an expert in the story and there are religious leaders in the story. Or he's the expert in the law. And that's a connection. But I don't think Jesus is like, he's not accusing the man of doing anything wrong. He says he's correct. And then the man asks a question and like, sure, he's trying to justify himself. Yeah, totally. I would imagine that this man, because he would have focused on the protagonist of the story, hopefully, and thought about like what it would be like 
for an enemy in his mind to care for him. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so the passage I was thinking of is actually in James 4, starting in verse 4. He says, You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity against God? Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. And I think choosing the world is, in in the way Jesus often frames it, is like uh, choosing the world in a prideful, self-interested way of like, you know, I have a job to do. I'm a priest. God will understand. Mm. is that choosing like a worldly motive enough to almost like frame yourself as an enemy of God in that moment? Because ideally the friend of God or the follower of Jesus would recognize that this man needs help and inconvenience ourselves enough in such a way to actually do something about it as the Samaritan does. Mm. So like even failure to act is essentially choosing friendship with the world. And in James framing, that makes you an enemy of God, therefore. Well, and if you think of now, I'm just thinking of like Micah six, you know, where it's talking about, you know, do I do I sacrifice the 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 one year old calf? You know, do I have all these offerings and these burnings? Like what what is it that the Lord requires? And it's clearly stated like what the Lord requires is for you to do justice you know, to love mercy, loving kindness, and to walk humbly with God. Like, it, yeah, pleasing right. God is not equal to living in the way of God. Mm-hmm. And I think all these stories basically show that. Like, if you are more concerned with pleasing and therefore you love your neighbor and hate your enemy, you know, that's being turned on its head by saying, no, this is what you really should do. And Josh, I do like what you're saying. Like, he's not saying that the guy is wrong. He's like, nope, you're absolutely right. I th- And I think what he's saying is like, you're right, but there's something missing. Like, it's not complete. Yeah. Hmm. Stephen, I like that that point about that verse that you read, because I almost feel like that lends itself to so many Christians having this focus on being in the world, but not of the world, because being of the, of world, the world would mean we're an enemy of God. Yeah, right. But also like... yeah. That's interesting paired with God loves God's enemies. Like if that's what Jesus is getting at, we should love our enemies because God loves God's enemies. Like even if they completely reject God. Yeah. Like it's this wonderfully circular thing that happens because if we, on a daily basis, I could admit that I, I have moments where I posture myself as an enemy against God because I'm choosing self-interest or choosing uh, choosing to say like, well, I have a job to do. Somebody else would take care of it, right? Like that's that's something that I do. Mm-hmm. But it's this wonderfully cir- circular thing where Jesus is saying like, love your enemies because God also loves your enemies. So even if I posture yourself, posture myself as an enemy against God, I know then that I am the subject of the prayer. Father, forgive them for they know not what they do, and that inspires me to like rejoin God in God's project, and become a friend of God then. And then like, man, Emily, I love the way you said like pleasing God is not equal to living in the way of God. Like if all we're interested in is getting like the cookie points from, from Jesus, we're missing the point. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, like living in the way of God is so much more like, I guess, dare I say like messy, dirty, bloody, grimy. Like, yeah, yeah. It's not, it's not an easy thing that the good Samaritan did. Like he's cleaning dried blood off of a wounded person. And he likely 
uh, speaking to the context of your verse in Matthew five, like he likely gave of his own clothes that he was wearing to protect himself on the road to clothe the naked man in order to get to the inn. And then he gave of his own resources to pay for a few nights stay at the inn for him to heal and rest and know he's protected by walls and a roof and like an innkeeper's staff, you know, Mm -hmm. that's a ton. That's a lot. But Josh, to your point, the fact that God loves God's own enemies, that's a very fascinating, that is like, well, of course we should be doing the same thing. If God, as God's self does that, that just seems like the way of the kingdom of heaven or the way of the universe, however you want to say that. I don't actually know if the Bible clearly says anywhere God loves God's enemies. I'm sure that there's like a passage in there somewhere that like you could argue says that, but um, it, I, I mean, I would say in Matthew five with Jesus saying it, I think that makes it true of God as well. Right. But I mean, yeah, I, I, I also see that, but I think that that is probably interpretation versus like, I don't know like an author, I don't know. I don't even, <laughs> I don't even believe the Bible's inerrant, but I don't think that's the same thing as the, as like the biblical text saying, God says that, I don't know, whatever. Anyway, <laughs> rewind. <laughs> Moving on. Uh, what I think is really interesting about God loving God's enemies is there are some Christians who would argue that God does not love God's enemies. In fact, he hates them because of their sin. Yeah. But he gives you grace. Mm-hmm. and then he Grace! loves me. but like it it like it feels like it feels like god's love with extra steps like it doesn't it like <laughs> it is the opposite of parsimonious oh <laughs> like it's like so complicated versus yeah. like big word god is love god loves enemies included right hmm the god is love tie feels huge to me because mm. wherever love is then god is right hopefully at least that's how i I feel that verse the way just like love, like in a panentheistic way is like what is animating the universe. To be honest, to get a little personal, um, it's passages like this that make me cling on to Christianity. Like I agree that the idea of a being creating the universe and like loving unconditionally and like, for lack of a more theological framework, wanting everybody to love each other and get along. I think that's beautiful. <laughs> like, <laughs> like the, the idea of like, if that's going to be the end product, then you have to love your enemies no matter what they do to you. Just to like, again, for lack of a better word, just to like blow them away and like show them how powerful love is. Like, it sounds so cheesy, but like, it's really inspiring when you hear the story of the, uh, going back to Emily's point about school shootings, when you see the Amish community reach out to the family of the shooter that massacred a bunch of children yeah. and reach out and be like, we forgive you. Like, that's powerful. Yeah. It's powerful to look past wrongdoing for some reason yeah. in a way that's like unjustified in some way. Yeah. Yeah. The same way that the black community like went and face to face forgave Dylan Roof for his acts. Right. Yeah. Yeah, that that is like you hear that story and I I I often wonder why that story isn't more sticky in the news. Mm. Like why aren't we still talking about why that community did that? Cuz that seems so otherworldly. And I mean that in the literal sense of otherworldly. Oh, I I have a theory. <laughs> Please, go off. 
because they are in society the enemy yeah right <laughs> they are they are less than no i i i'm talking about even the community that's forgiving the the perpetrator or whatever oh okay like keep going then what those do you mean? those who are seen as less than who are showing acts of love and forgiveness and compassion we don't we don't always i think see it as such because for so long they have been seen as less than wow like it's almost Whoa. it's almost like it would be more meaningful if it was a white community doing that because for so long white individuals have been seen as more than and so when we're called to you know to love the least of these and we we see examples of those who are quote unquote the least of these doing the very thing that we're called to do it's just kind of like a meh so what <laughs> like here is a radical group of people doing a radical thing and it's it it for some reason it doesn't want to click in our head because it's not the majority or those in power or those who are more than doing it we're uncomfortable with the idea of those who are not us doing the very thing that we're called to do because we're struggling with it like <laughs> you know it's it, uh. It makes my heart heavy, honestly. Huh. Like that. Like here's a great example. You just, okay. Oh, go yeah. ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead. What you just said is something that had never occurred to me, and it is extremely convicting in the sense that it had never occurred to me. Hmm. Like the posture that would say, or like being part of a society that would recognize a community like that forgiving people who murdered their family members. Wow. I don't know. I, I feel like I just have to process the fact that that hadn't occurred to me. And I feel like that's revealing something about me in, in that, like, mm. why, why didn't that occur to me sooner that the reason we're still not talking about it? Because I, I like, obviously I still have the example front of mind because I think it is beautiful, but in, in a culture that is still struggling with, white supremacy in a way like i even feel like the phrase when you say least of these if someone isn't coming from an anti-racist or like decolonized perspective like if i say the least of these i want to know how many of our listeners immediately thought of someone of color you know what i mean yeah that is very that is very convicting to the point of like i am uncomfortable that i'm still talking about it Wow. Mm. Wow. Okay. You had another point that you had started, Emily. Oh, well, I was just thinking like with other marginalized groups of people and thinking of, you know, here's to love our neighbor or to love our enemy. I was just thinking of what happened recently with one of the annual conferences down in Florida in the United Methodist Church where they were voting on 16 or excuse me, 19 clergy that were going to be ordained. And because two of them are LGBTQ individuals, the whole entire conference voted against all 19 being ordained as elders or deacons. And I think and I think like that right there, like that for me personally was a huge example of like 
you're my neighbor, but I'm now seeing you as an enemy because of who you are. And yeah. so I'm going to yeah. use my power and authority against you. And it it just made me so mad. But on the other side of that, because so many people have now seen that conferences that are now happening in the United Methodist Church all over, they're laying out robes. I'm going to cry just thinking about it. Um, they're laying robes on on chairs for those who should have been ordained including the two LGBTQ individuals. And I love that people all over the country and even all over the globe, for that matter, for countries who are, you know, having their own annual conferences that are Methodists, for those places to show acts of love by saying, if you were here, these robes and these stoles would be for you. Mm. Like, Mm. that is just so powerful. And we're seeing examples of that And more like for anyone who's considered an enemy, for anyone who's considered a neighbor, like we're seeing so many different radical ways of loving and compassion and forgiveness. And we're not always going to hear those because of who is in the story. Or who gets to tell the story. Yeah. Wow. So who is my enemy then? Going back to Stephen's original question. I think I'll go first. I'll get personal. This question made my notebook after the the news of the Uvalde shooting in Texas. And it very immediately brought up a ton of feelings and a ton of memories I had around being a senior in high school um, in 2012. and um in in the like the few days following the Sandy Hook shooting which to me was the first time that like right like I didn't understand what happened at Columbine at the age I was at at the time so like and Sandy Hook especially being like uh my first encounter with something like this and a lot of our first encounters with supreme acts of evil and violence in an elementary school. Um, that happened right around the time that our show choir was going around to all the elementary schools and doing Christmas caroling for them as little mini concerts during the school day. And uh, I I remember standing in South Elementary School, which in Laurel is like, at the time it was like kindergarten through second grade. And knowing that it was this age of children that were targeted at Sandy Hook. Um, Like, oh, I can barely talk about it right now. Starting to cry. But like, I, I could not sing that entire day after visiting South Elementary School just because like bringing stupid little Christmas carols (laughs) in a season that's already designed to represent like bringing the light of joy and cheer and family and connectedness to like the quite literal darkest time of year in America, just but based on the way the sun rises and sun sets. Like that's already what the season represents, but then like bringing these little Christmas carols to a bunch of kids who didn't know what happened in Connecticut. Right. Um, and me just like looking at their faces and knowing that like it could have been these kids who didn't go home this Christmas, right? I think 
so when this happened, when this, it, this, this is everything that recently in Texas, this, these are all the feelings that it brought up in me. And I, I tweeted quite a bit that night, um, feeling very angry, feeling very angry at communities that I am a part of and have been a part of, especially in Montana being a largely red state who is against anything that I would consider common sense gun reform, like red flag laws, upping the age to access semi-automatic weapons, all these kind of things. So being part of that community, being part of a Christian community that has also been wed to like a Republican platform in a way that I find frankly disgusting. Um, and being embedded in a community and having gun owning friends. I like there, there were a few days there where I literally considered any gun owner an enemy to me because I, I, I just did not understand how you could hold attention of this is what guns can do to human child bodies. And you want to keep a gun in your house. And I mean, I'm an extreme pacifist anyway. We've done an entire episode about disarming the gunslinging savior before, but uh, like I tweeted that night, like I'll be a universalist again tomorrow. Today I want hellfire. Cause I was so angry at how poorly it feels like the multiple overlaps of communities that I find myself a part of just continued to seem and feel apathetic or uh, just running back to the talking points of why we need a second amendment or why we need a gun right in every American's home or whatever. Um, and to be honest, I'm still struggling with that quite a bit. So if I'm, if I'm working to identify who my enemy is today, uh, some overlap of those groups are still places where I'm trying to embody a Jesus way of living that would both say they are my enemy and my neighbor, and therefore I ought to be praying, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they do, and find a seat for them at my table. I like that. I, I think that it's possible to read this text and argue that Jesus is arguing us to look past the binary of enemy and neighbor anyway, in that like, if we're going to love our neighbors and love our enemies, then like, why is there a distinction in the label? Yeah, right. Um, I also think it's worth saying that fundamentally by loving someone who is tangibly victimizing people, um, it should humanize them as well, rather than, like I think that we can call out abusive actions while also calling for healing and the betterment of another human being. I think that can get really complicated, but I think it's possible personally. I also think it's worth saying that I think we can love our enemies and that doesn't always mean reconciliation and having a relationship with someone else. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's huge. I don't remember if we were what episode we were talking about it, but like, like the idea of forgiveness being not dwelling on something anymore. Like, I think sometimes loving our enemies is more of an internal battle than it is externally focused. And I think it's absolutely possible to love someone that has done you wrong without even being in contact with them. Mm. I agree with that. And I also feel a tension 
with sometimes it feels like you don't have that choice to create that distance, you know? Sure. Yeah. And especially even struggling with, I mean, like when the definition became so simple for me as like, you own a registered gun in our country, you're an enemy. Like if I acted on that, I would become a very isolated person here in Montana by people and from people who like I work with on a daily basis or I play D and D with, you know, like it, not even in a church context of like most everyone I know. Right. And I don't want to do that. Do, do either of you feel like you have an answer? Like if you were going to dwell on who is my enemy, I think you could sum it up as the enemy is someone who has done you wrong or Mm -hmm. hurt you. Yeah. Which, to be honest, I think in the context of uh, church hurt and people leaving faith communities for various reasons, I think that that is very complicated, especially when like loving your enemies is often tied to like the sincerity of your faith and like the culmination of your faith. Yeah. I think that's a hard one. But I, I think it, it works as a definition to define it as someone who's done you wrong. I, um, I wrestle with that, Josh, honestly. Um, oh, okay. Because I think that you make it just sound so simple. And for me, I know that in, in at least my life, it's not that simple because I've had friends who have caused me harm. And I have friends who have caused other people harm, intentionally or not. And I think that's where I get stuck is when we see people who are intentionally causing harm, it's easy to say that they're my enemy. But when there's someone who is unintentionally causing harm, maybe time and time again, but they don't recognize that, do they then become my enemy? You know, and maybe the idea of neighbor and enemy is solely based on the fact that we are identifying them as neighbor and enemy. Like, I am creating the label of enemy and neighbor. It's not them. Like That's huge, Emily. They are not the ones saying, I'm your enemy. Like, (laughs) we are creating that on them. And so, for all I know, I'm someone else's enemy. Like, I don't want to be someone's enemy, but maybe I am. And maybe the idea is... You can be both. And so I I really like the idea of like, just throw those labels out the window because it doesn't matter. Because if we're so stuck on the idea of who is my neighbor and who is my enemy and then we're losing the point because at some point we're all going to be a neighbor and possibly an enemy, maybe even in the same day. And I think we just need to focus on the fact that it's love that we're called to. It's it's not so much about the person, but it's the fact that you're willing to love them, like to love. That is what is the focus. And that's where we get tripped because we're trying to, we're spending time trying to identify and making sure that those labels are accurate. And so then we know, oh, well, if you're my enemy or if you're my neighbor, then it doesn't really matter. But we're still losing the point that it's the loving part. So get rid of the labels <laughs> because. At the end of the day, if it really doesn't matter who they are, if what matters is the fact that we love them and we see the value of who they are, the Imago day within them, then that is what's important. And so I think for me personally, I find myself wrestling with the idea of maybe my enemy are those that I am no longer seeing the Imago day 
Maybe I'm creating enemies by no longer seeing them as being worthy of love. And I say that even for me, like I bet there are people or maybe even for myself, I feel like there are times where I am unworthy of love. And so therefore, like I see myself as an enemy and maybe that's God's way of trying to pull us out of that and to say, okay, see, these labels are not doing you any any good because you're losing the point of that love is the center of it. Uh, I'm going to echo that and return to the text and also our previous conversation on imposter syndrome. Jesus affirms the phrase, uh, and I say that very loosely, (laughs) Uh, but Jesus like says that he agrees with the phrase, love your neighbor as yourself. And it's funny that like such a short phrase could have such profound meaning, but like certainly there's an element of self-love in there. Mm -hmm. And I think the the phrase uh i'm my own worst enemy comes to mind yeah and like that tying in with like imposter syndrome and beating yourself up over whatever like i think it can be really tempting to be self-deprecating constantly like christian or not like i mean i think there's certain mm-hmm. theologies that lead you to self-deprecation and i just i think it's harmful like i i don't think we should like i mean i think we can like look at ourselves in humor and like notice our own shortcomings but like i think that this is also a call for self-love yeah Hmm. thank you for diving into this with me yeah this uh it it feels like i have less on my shoulders now after this conversation honestly and i think in a way i think uh i'm continuing continuing to inspire myself to actually become part of a church community again is because like conversations like this in a regular venue for, I mean, I feel like what I did with sharing who I feel like my enemy is right now, I feel like this is what we mean in the most healthy way of like, this is why confession is important is to like, get it off of me and ask a community to like bear it with me or to find a blind spot that I can't see myself. Like I think meditating on who is my enemy and who is my neighbor. Sure. You can do that alone. You know, everyone who listened to this episode likely did it with earbuds. So like they're pondering this question alone, but I would hope it would inspire a conversation with someone who can process it with them as you guys have allowed me to process it. Because I think like confession within community is huge. And I've been missing that in church. Yeah, 100%. Hmm. Well, Emily, do you have a uh, word to close us out on of any kind? Mm. I think one of the words that comes to mind um, is a benediction I often say uh, in my own church services. And it's, may we know the extent of love May we feel the extent of love and may we be for the world that very same extent of love and know that God is with us and among us and that love radiates through all and permeates the soul in ways that we will never understand.
Welcome to the Whiskey Bench, where we pair cocktails with conversation. Whether we're diving deep into a meaty subject like the history of fascism, or why monetary policy drives inflation, or just bringing you the highlights of a crazy news week, we aim to look past the simple answers and discuss the complexity of our wild world. So pull up a chair, pour yourself a drink, and join us on the Whiskey Bench. Highline Media Network, artist-owned podcasts by normal people in normal places.